The pandemic changed federal banking regulation, mainly because auditors couldn't go to banks in person to check the books and procedures. Regulators figured out ways to do remote bank supervision, but they didn't all update their risk profiles. And this is all according to the Government Accountability Office. Here with what they found, the GAO's Director of Financial Markets and Community Investment, Michael Clements. Mr. Clements, good to have you on. Thank you for having me, Tom. I'm happy to be here. And let's begin with who are all of the federal bank regulators? Besides FDIC, there's quite a roster of them. There's a variety of banking regulators, and it's a function of the nature of the charter and also the size of the institution. So we start off with the Office of the Control of the Currency, which is a component of Treasury that supervises nationally chartered banks. Then, as you mentioned, we have FDIC, the Federal Reserve, the National Credit Union Administration, which oversees credit unions, and then finally, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau that oversees the consumer protection laws as it pertains to depository institutions. And I guess I'm a little surprised that banking oversight regulation, I can see in the case of resolution where FDIC goes in and, you know, kind of that's the end, see you later, Charlie wraps up the place. But otherwise, is it still an in-person activity to begin with? It is. In many instances, it's an on-site examination. So in fact, the FDI Act requires that the Fed, OCC, and FDIC conduct a full-scope on-site examination. It's typically every 12 months, although for smaller institutions, it can be every 18 months. But yes, the examiners will go on-site, talk to management, look through loan files and other financial information. So these are things that they can't always do just online or can't be sent electronically? It's a challenge. And so that was one of the challenges with the pandemic, moving to a completely remote environment, was getting access to both perhaps paper files, especially at some of those smaller institutions, but also access to the depository institution's financial systems. And what did you find that they adapted during the pandemic when they simply couldn't get to some of the banks? The banking regulators moved quite quickly to identify, assess, and then respond to these various challenges. The first step was simply to defer some of the examinations just to allow the depository institutions to get their feet settled in the new operating environment, but also to expand what's known as off-site monitoring. So this occurs between those examinations where the banking regulators will examine banks and just monitor the financial conditions. And finally, the banking regulators expanded their technology and also telework options, providing technology that would allow depository institutions to securely send financial information to the banking examiners. All right. And so did they all do this pretty much equally? That is to say, were they all equipped properly to continue the mission through the pandemic with these remote means? We conducted 20 focus groups with 110 bank examiners, and generally there was pretty positive response to how the agencies were able to continue their mission. Very good comments based upon the technology, the telework, and also the communication from management. That said, there were challenges, and again, the main challenges focused on some of the smaller depository institutions, community banks, and credit unions that in many instances, simply had paper files and did not have the means to quickly scan those and convert them into electronically or to provide remote access to their systems. Yeah, even this deep into the 21st century, they sounds like they still have passbooks in some cases. There are a number of very small institutions. We've in the past seen 
credit unions that operate on a very limited basis out of the basement of a church, for example. So some of them, yes, do not have access to the high capacity scanners that might be needed. In fact, that's one of the things FDIC did, which was lend some of these institutions high capacity scanners so that they could, in fact, scan loan documents. And teach people what a scanner is, I suppose, too. We're speaking with Michael Clements, Director of Financial Markets and Community Investments at the GAO. And you found that what lagged behind the ability to function then remote was updating of the auditor's risk profiles. Tell us more about that. Yes, we had two recommendations in this report. First off, in the case of the Federal Reserve, we recommended that the Fed update its enterprise risk management framework to incorporate risk to its supervision function, and in particular, including the pandemic. We saw most of the other banking regulators had done so and updated that framework to recognize these types of new risks that may occur in the future. In the case of OCC, we recommended that they conduct the lessons learned. All the regulators quite quickly and thoroughly conducted real-time monitoring during the pandemic, looking at examiner hours, staffing, the exam process. But we recommended OCC take that additional step just to look at lessons learned to help prepare for the next disruption. Is the risk in the disruption one that they won't be able to do their work as effectively as they could if they can fly around, drive around, drop in and say hi to the bank president and snoop around? My word, not their word. Or is the risk simply that the supervision won't be as thorough and there's greater risk to the banking system itself or to some sector of it? There's a mix of those two. It is certainly the case that being on site and be able to talk to the bank executives and also employees is helpful and to see those loan files as well. We did see the case throughout the pandemic that depending on the risk characteristics of an institution, that the regulators might have either scaled back the scope or deferred some of the examinations. Yeah, interesting, because there's also the effect that the pandemic might have had on the financial situation of those banks because of people maybe feeling they needed to hoard cash or, I don't know, there was lots of reactions at the beginning of the pandemic since no one knew what the extent would be. That might have affected banks' cash flow or reserves or their actual deposits. The pandemic played out perhaps a little differently than people might have thought. At the start of the pandemic, there were concerns, for example, about credit risk, for example, people unable to pay mortgages or other loans. There was also concerns, as you mentioned, known as liquidity risk. Would the institution be able to pay out the cash? But the fact is the pandemic played out and perhaps to some extent driven by government policy, a flood of deposits going into institutions. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, that was a strange effect. I think, you know, people are spending it down now. And do you find or do you recommend or what's the sense of whether these remote examining procedures, now that they prove to be useful, will continue post-pandemic just to save everybody a lot of travel time and effort? There's been considerations of that, but again, FDI Act does require these on-site examinations, and especially for some of these smaller institutions it seems to be the way to go and did find that some of the exams were taking longer than they did in the past. And so, in fact, entities such as FDIC had to bring back some retired and bank examiners. Right. So the law then mitigates against telework, so to speak, when it comes to this particular mission. Telework as it pertains to not going actually on site. So right. banking regulars actually are a little unique among federal employees, in fact, a fair amount of their time is actually spent outside of their home office, but at right, the yeah. that they're examining. I guess telemedicine would be a better analogy. Yes. 
Michael Clements is Director of Financial Markets and Community Investment at the Government Accountability Office. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Tom. I appreciate it. And we'll post this interview along with a link to his report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what does that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really 
sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together. Because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we we actually work with a, a number of those too, and and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it. Right, the seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, something he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations on on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, And so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, One thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, But we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals, um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my essentially my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. 
And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? And I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry. Maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.